Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you because you have given us uh, the grace to come and worship your name for what you have done and what you continue to do by the power of your spirit in us, Lord. We are a people that you have set apart, that you have loved from the foundation of the earth, Lord. And we come together, we come together, Lord, just in gratitude for what you have accomplished on our behalf, Lord. Help us to be one, Lord. Help us to be one people, Lord. And as we come together, and now that we're going to study your word, be with us, give us insight, give us wisdom into your word. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. All right. So kids can go to their Sunday school classes if it's available. If not, you can remain in the main hall. With us. All right, so Pastor Phil is out. He's in Portland. He is doing a conference out in that uh, Pacific Northwest. Uh, and I am going to be continuing the study on the topic of baptism. And before we add a little more content to this chapter, I wanted to recap a little bit of what was already discussed so we can have it readily in our minds because. The extra layer we're going to look at today is going, to, is going to be in contrast to what we've already been discussing. So the first thing is that God is a God of covenant. We've seen that, right? Throughout, throughout Scripture, we see that God establishes a relationship with man and with creation. And it is in a form of covenant. Of course, it's not just a document where he says, keep my statutes and if you violate them, in, these, in this covenant document, you will surely die. But in effect, that is the outworking of that relationship. If you obey personally and perfectly, you will gain access to the tree of life. If you disobey, you will die. That is a covenant, right? But God is not just establishing a covenant for information's sake, right? It's not just a plain document. God is a God of art as well, right? So with that established relationship, he also establishes signs, visible signs that represent the promises that he makes to man, that abstract theoretical stuff, right, that we see in the Bible. He says, and this is a sign for those promises. We see it in the Noahic covenant with the rainbow. We see it, we're going to take a look at circumcision as well and baptism in the Lord's table. They represent something that's invisible. And God is both a God of the invisible information, right? And also, it's tangible. You can look at it, right? The visible signs, they point to the invisible reality of our relationship to God. We exist in a reality that is both spiritual and corporal, both being created by God. That is a very important point. Because a lot of the Greek philosophers, right, and also as Christians, we tend to what? Kind of put a lot of weight on the spiritual versus the visible, right? We, we contend for the invisible realities of what? Of faith, right? Of all these things that are in our soul, but what does that look like? Does God care for what faith looks like in action in our daily lives? And of course he does, Right? In the past sermon that uh, Pastor Phil gave to us, we see that in the Old Testament, God, out, God outlines what? The visible aspects of his worship. And does God care about the visible aspects? 
course he does. In, in, in fact, if the Levites did not, or if the people did not submit to every point he makes in the visible aspects of worship, what would happen to them? They would die. Right? So that is a very important aspect. You can't just say, well, God says to worship him with these ribbons or with this linen, right? The Levites had to work, had to wear particular linens. If you, if they got that wrong, there was consequences. So it's not just about the invisible things that God is doing with us, namely through faith and by his grace, but those physical aspects, God cares for them. And we have to be a people that care for the spiritual and the corporal reality that God has created. The sacraments are a sign and seal of the things signified. The thing signified is salvation by grace through the instrument of faith, right? So it's, what, what am I trying to say with that? Every mode, every visible aspect of the covenant is not in and of itself something that works wonders. It has to be, what? Actuated, brought to reality. How? By grace, through faith. Through the instrument of faith, right? We see that where? In John chapter 3, in the new birth, right? The role of the Holy Spirit in making us new, right? That's an invisible aspect of our faith, right? So it has to be through that rebirth. Why? Because we are born in sin, right? And we need to be reborn. But the thing signified has a physical representation. And in this case, right, the waters of baptism. This position avoids two ditches, right? And in the middle of the road that the the Bible starts to give us an image of, right? It avoids sacramentalism on one side of the road. That's a ditch. And also mere memorialism, right? Sacramentalism and mere memorialism. Mere memorialism is, this is just something that kind of represents something, right? We hold on to our faith, but we really don't take the visible signs very seriously. Right? We can do it, we can not do it. If we do it, that's great. If we don't, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the substance. But do, is that the attitude of God? Of course not. He cares for the invisible and the visible realities, right? Sacramentalism, the left side, if you want to put sides to it, of the ditch. <laughs> Sacramentalism is elevating the sign above the substance, to believe the sign confers grace in and of itself. Can you think of any church body that kind of believes that? That the sacraments has a power to confer grace in and of itself without the work of the Holy Spirit. Who? Roman Catholics. Thank you. I can't hear you. Sorry. Sitting so far away. So Roman Catholics. Yes. That's what theologians say, ex opere operato. That's a big word that just says, listen, this in and of itself, by the virtue of the work itself, confers a grace independent of the, the will of God. Again, against John chapter 3 with Nicodemus, right? The Spirit comes and goes and brings the new birth. It is not the sacrament in and of itself. Mere memorialism is disregarding, that's the other side of the ditch, right, of, of the middle of the road of scripture. Mere memorialism is disregarding the sign as a seal of the substance of faith by the grace of God. Can somebody read for me real quick Exodus 4, 
chapter 24 through 26. Exodus 4, 24 through 26. Whoever has it, just read it out loud. Right. So what just happened there? So God was going to go and kill Moses. Why? Anybody? Guessers? No guessers. Why? What? Exactly. He did not perform circumcision on the son. Does God care about the substance of faith being represented? Of course he does. He was going to kill Moses if he did not do that. That's very serious, right? So, again, it's not a mere memorial. Continue. Last week, I remember Pastor Phil going through the term baptizo, right? The baptizo is a word that has multiple meanings, including immerse, to pour, to sprinkle. It's not necessarily tied to the action of only immersion, right? Since he knows Greek, and I do not. (laughs) So he looked up places where baptizo is used. And it's not strictly to the action of immersion. Baptism is a sign of washing away sins, of remission of sins. We see this time and time again in the New Testament. We see that those have repented. What comes immediately after repentance is the baptism, right? It's the seal of what they've just confessed. What they have just received by the work of the Holy Spirit is now sealed by the waters of baptism. Baptism also, this is something we will continue now in my edition, baptism is a sign of initiation into the covenant. Baptism is a sign of initiation into the covenant. Can someone read for me Genesis 17, verses 7 through 14? And somebody else, can you uh, gather Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12? First, let's read Genesis. So whoever has it can uh, read it. So the sign is what? What is the sign of that that Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision, right? God establishes a covenant with Abraham. How does he establish a covenant with Abraham? Because he believed it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham receives the gift of what? Of saving faith. He is regenerated. God elects him. Gets him out of his sin. And because Abraham believed it is counted to him as righteousness. And when he establishes the covenant with Abraham. He establishes also the sign of circumcision. 
For who? For him? And who else? And his offspring. Right? Because God, in the promise of Abraham, what is he doing? He is adding descendants of Abraham as numerous as what? As the stars. Right? He's continuously adding through that covenant promise. Now, somebody can uh, read Colossians 2, verses 11 through 12. Who has it? Can read it. Anybody? Any takers? Want to read the Bible? So what we read in those verses, is there a connection between what? Circumcision and what? And baptism, right? It is now a a what? A new sign of entering into the covenant, the new covenant with God. And the Apostle, Apostle Paul is connecting the nature of circumcision, along with some other factors of the new covenant. But he is connecting this sign What happened in Genesis 17, verses 7 through 14, he is connecting it now through Christ in the new covenant. Why? Because the promise has always been that God is going to make descendants as numerous as the stars. And that includes Jews and Gentiles. So is that happening now? Is that continuously happening now? Yes, it is, right? So the promise, the, co- the Abrahamic promise, the covenant made with Abraham, which is for him and his posterity, is still ongoing. What aspect of the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ? If it's not the Abrahamic, it is the... There's a guy named Moses, right? So the Mosaic covenant is fulfilled in Christ. The Mosaic covenant is the giving of the law, the partaking and fulfilling of the law, but because Moses is a failed sinner, right? Christ, the greater Moses, fulfills the law in our stead. And he becomes the perfect high priest, the mediator of a new and greater covenant. So Moses is fulfilled in Christ, but because Abraham is what? Is saved by grace through faith. And God tells him, it's not just you, it's your family. And it's the generations after them. It's not just the Jews, it's the Gentiles. That, and we read in what? In Romans chapter 4, we read the Apostle Paul also say that those that come to faith, they are true sons of who? Abraham, right? They're true sons and daughters of Abraham. He doesn't say Moses. He says Abraham, right? So that continues on. Also, baptism is a sign that we are united, I put an asterisk there, united to Christ. There is a union, but it's a, it's a twofold union, to Christ. We've read past, uh, the past Sunday, Romans chapter 6, right? How baptism is also linked to the dying of Christ and the raising up from the dead, right? That action of receiving the waters is an action of death. You have been baptized into Christ in his death. You have been united to him in his death. You are united to him in his resurrection. You are being made alive. But there is another aspect, right? 
There's another aspect that's not just about being raised with Christ. Can someone read to me John 15, verses 1 through 17? John 15, 1 through 17. Amen. There's a lot there to unpack, but just within the second layer. We've read in Romans chapter 6, and we've recapped, right, that baptism is a form of union with Christ for salvation, right? The death of Christ, you are united to him in those waters, and as you raise up, you are raised with Christ from the dead. But Christ in John chapter 15 says there is another union. Right? There's an engrafting in that chapter going on there. Right, And if you do not bear fruit, once you are engrafted and you're not bearing fruit, what does the chapter say? That you are cut off. There is a, a type of union with Christ, therefore, that is for what? For judgment and condemnation. So you can be unified to Christ for salvation, but you can have union with Christ for judgment. How? Here's the problem. Not everybody who is baptized remains a Christian. Right? We can all come to the table as Presbyterians or any other position, uh, namely Baptists. Not everybody who is baptized remains a Christian. But Romans chapter 6 tells me that those who have been baptized have union with Christ. How could then there be people... Who what? Who fall away. But John 15 tells me that there's people who fall away. Those who do not bear fruit, they've been engrafted, 
They have a union with Christ, but because they do not bear fruit, they are cut off and thrown into the fire. That's scary, right? So there is a form of what? Apostasy. A false conversion. A faith that is not saving faith. Right? We see that in the parable of the seeds, right? There is this aspect of judgment that comes with baptism. So this is how we deal with the problem of apostasy. For non-reformed folk, right? Nobody that's, that wouldn't call themselves reformed. Uh, down from Roman Catholics down to just your modern day evangelical. Uh, Christ, they would, they would argue that Christ's redemptive work can be defeated by sin. Hence the swapping between the regenerative and non-regenerative states, right? Resulting in apostasy. So they look at these passages, John 15, 1 through 17, and they say, well, you know, Christ's work can be thwarted by your sin. Therefore, you can come in and out. Backsliding is like losing your salvation. You can gain it again. So on and so forth. Roman Catholics, that's why they believe that there is, there is a power in baptism that is not with the Holy Spirit. It is within just the waters because you can lose this. What's being applied to you can be lost by your sin. The reform position, what do we say? Christ's redemptive work cannot be defeated by sin, hence creating a distinction, right? So we look at these passages. We look at what? John chapter 10, when Jesus says that he will not lose any of his sheep, that those he has loved, he has predestined, he, has, he will keep and persevere until the end of their walk, right? Romans chapter 8, there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. There's no principalities. There's no sin that can separate who? Us, but that's the church. But further on, it's who? The elect, right? It's the substance of the covenant. Those that God knows. The believers, right? So we have a distinction to make. Since Christ's work cannot be thwarted, and you cannot go from being regenerate to unregenerate. That's not biblical. So I said, okay, so there is a new category that Reformed people look at the church, and because the Bible makes it, we make it. There's a distinction between those who persevere and those who fall away in apostasy. What do we call that? Given the efficacy of Christ's redemptive work, the distinction that is created between the elect and apostates is called the visible an invisible church. That's where that term comes from that we use. When we look at the church, we say, oh, that's the visible church. Oh, that's the covenant community. It's because we make these distinctions between those that God knows to be his people, that the passages like Romans chapter 6 makes, that you are united to Christ in his death and therefore united to him in his resurrection. That's for who? The believers, the true believers. But there's passages also, right? Like Galatians chapter 5. There's passages that seem to communicate that you can fall from grace. In fact, Galatians 5, I'm going to read it real quick. says this, For freedom in Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, 
You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You have fallen from grace. So the non-reformed, they look at these these types of passages and they say, well, obviously, well, then you can lose your salvation. Right? But that would put us in a what? It would put us in a contradiction. We have passages that says, that testify to the security of the believer, and there are passages that say that you clearly, if you do these things, you are cut away. That's, that's hard, right? Well, not for Presbyterians. <laughs> visible and invisible church. We would see the visible church, and we see Galatians chapter 5. And the invisible church, we would see John chapter 10. The visible church, what is that? It's professed believers... And the children, if they have any children, professed believers and the children, baptized under the authority and preaching of the gospel, and they are communicant members of the church, or uncommunicant members of the church as well. For the invisible church, who are they? Believers who are baptized under the authority and preaching of the, of the gospel, and communicant members of the church, right? For the one category, professed believers. For the invisible category, who knows that category. Is it us or is it God? God, right? So that's why I make that distinction. Professed believers, the children, and the invisible, true believers that God alone knows. That's how we make sense of Scripture and all these passages, right? But both groups are the church. We don't call this the church and this is... It. No, they're both the church and what? And are known to be, by Reformed, and by name, by Reformed, I, see, I say Presbyterian, as the covenant community. Why? Because it's a mixed community. It's, it's, there's believers, there's non-believers. All of them baptized. Their kids with them baptized as well. But what? That baptism is what? By the power of the Holy Spirit, through the instrument of faith, makes that baptism what? True remission of sins. For the invisible church. But for the professed believer who is not part of the invisible church. What does baptism mean for them? Anybody have an idea? Okay. So, okay, we're going to discuss what that means in the next two passages. So I wanted to read uh, Westminster chapter uh, 28.1. On baptism. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the what? The visible church, right? Making that distinction. But also to be, to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ. That's John chapter 15, 1 through 17. Of a regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up to, unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So that's why it's important to make these distinctions between the visible and invisible church when we read the confession of faith, because it's very important. Because if we do not come to this conclusion, I believe, that we would be in a contradiction with Scripture. If we see these passages that clearly communicate a stern warning. Stern warning. It's not just a fake warning. Right? If we we confess that God truly saves His elect, but we come to these passages and we're like, "Mm, this seems to communicate this. And that's the accusation 
from Lutherans or from Catholics, they look at these passages, they look at Calvinists, and they say, you're doing dances with the text. Because this clearly communicates a falling away that you do not want to come to. But we do truly see these passages. And that's strictly Presbyterian theology. Why? Because there is a layer of the covenant, an administrative layer. There's the substance of the elect, and there's the substance, I mean, the, the administrative layer, the outer layer of the covenant, which is including, who? who? The non-believers. The people who have made professed faith, yet do not have saving faith. The children of professed believers as well. Apostasy. Apostasy only makes sense if we look at Scripture through the Presbyterian lens. There, there is just no other way, in my opinion, we can discuss it later if you have any objections. There's just no way to make sense of this and not end up being any other position like Lutheran or whatever. So, in conclusion, baptism is also a sign of judgment. For who? For the visible church. For the unregenerate in the covenant, right? Baptism is a sign of judgment. Check this out. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Let me see how much time I got. I'm a little over. We'll stay here. Baptism is a sign of judgment. Let's go through this passage because this connects a lot of what happened in, with Noah, and it connects with baptism to today. So let's go through it. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. So it's talking about Christ's sacrifice, right? His actions, his passive and active obedience on the cross. He's painting for us a picture of what happened on the cross. And it says, but made alive in the spirit. Some translations have spirit as a capital S. In fact, the KJV has a capital S. And it says, Be, being made quickened by the spirit, namely the Holy Spirit. Can someone read real quickly? Luke 23, verses 46. Luke 23, verses 46. Just that verse. So we can have a comparison. We can look at other portions of scripture and make sense of it. Right, so we see that at the death of Christ, what happens after he dies, he, commit, he commits his spirit to who? To the Father, right? After his death, in the spirit. The KJV says being, being quickened by the Holy Spirit, right? So in that action of dying, he is being made alive in the spirit. He commits that spirit to the Father. That's important, all right? In which... He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. This is a very murky, very unclear passage, right? I'm going to read it again. Which he went and proclaimed. What's the ministry of Christ in the world? Is to proclaim the kingdom. Is to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, salvation for, from uh, the condemnation of sin. To the spirits in prison. What, what is this group? Can somebody read real quickly? Luke, Luke 4. Verses 18 through 19. Spirits in prison.
So we see that the ministry of Christ is with the power of who? The Holy Spirit to do what? To proclaim liberty to the who? To the captives. Spirits in captivity. This is the ministry of Christ, right? This is his ministry. He's been made death in the flesh. He has been made alive in the spirit. He commends his spirit to the Father. And then Peter is here describing the ministry of Christ. And then, because they formerly did not obey, who? The spirits in prison. Those who have been captive. Who are those that have been captive? Every sinner. Every sinner. That's, that's who we are. We are captive by the power of sin. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So Peter is now presenting an image of the fall. And what are the consequences of the fall? A cataclysmic cosmological event in the what? In the flood. Right? While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this. I'm going to end. Baptism corresponds to this judgment of water. So the Noahic flood, what is that? That's a huge, that's a huge baptism of the world. And what does that do? What does this baptism do? It now saves you. It did what? A condemnation before in which only eight persons were brought safely through water. And who are the ones that brought safely through water? Noah? Is it just Noah? No, it's all of his family, right? He goes through baptism safely, right? And now this saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. So we have this cataclysmic event in the Noahic flood. And here, Peter is equating that event of what? Of baptism. He killed everyone except who? Noah and his family. For them, it was salvation. For the rest of the world, it's condemnation. But what happens afterwards? Because of the cataclysmic cosmological event where? On the cross. The waters of baptism that were used to drown the whole earth. You know what? Now it saves you. That's what Peter's is saying. He's saying, before it killed you, (laughs) and only one family passed through it safely. But now it saves you because the cosmological event of the cross changes everything. And now by the power of the cross... Those who, who, who is it that this saves? Those for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand. Those who appeal to Christ, those are the one benefiting now from baptism. So this is just, I have to end here. I'm getting all kinds of warnings. But (laughs) this is important because a lot of people don't look at these types of passages. There's another passage in 1 Corinthians 10 where baptism is also used in a different context. In in that case, it's through Moses. But I guess Pastor Phil will have to do it or somebody else. All right? So any questions? All right, let's pray.
Dear Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time, Lord, that you have granted us. Uh, Thank you for giving us your word and the clarity of it. Help us to come to the right understanding, Lord. And thank you for your salvation in Jesus Christ. Now bless the time of fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.